Today's scripture reading is found in Matthew 27, 1 through 14. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Amen. You guys may be seated. As you take your seat, let's pray together. Our great God, thank you for allowing us to gather in the name of your son today. Thank you for promising to be present here and to work and to speak and to pour out your grace and mercy. Our great God, would you, by your spirit, take these scriptures and cause us to believe them. Cause us to hear what they say and seek to live in light of them. Lord, I pray that you would help me convey hard realities with love and to convey hard realities with compassion this morning. Please be at work, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, it's great to be with you all this morning. If you would, please take your Bible or the Bible in the chair in front of you. Turn to Matthew chapter 27, uh, where Emmy just read for us. If you're our guest this morning, thanks so much for being here. At Redeemer, we are working our way through the book of Matthew, and we come to chapter 27 this morning. In the book of Matthew, the story is being told of Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the Christ, who is the Savior of the world. And it's being told in such a way that we would hear the good news and believe. We, as we enter chapter 27, are in the last hours of the earthly life of Jesus. And, and chapter 27 actually begins on uh, the Friday morning that we now know as Good Friday. And there are two realities in this passage. Um, and I was taught in seminary that a good preacher could take the two realities and push them together where they felt like one reality. But I can't figure this one out. So we're just going to have... Two realities. And some of you are like, dude, we've known you weren't a good preacher for a long, long time. Nothing new here. But we have two realities. We have a reality of the charges against Jesus are being formalized. And 
he is moving swiftly toward crucifixion. And then we have this reality of Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, wrestling with the guilt that he feels over betraying Jesus. And so I think we need to consider both of these realities this morning. And maybe the overwhelming truth is this. As we have spent four songs singing, the blood of Jesus is enough for everyone's sin. And everyone needs the blood of Jesus. But to be able to sing that, the blood had to be poured out. And for the blood to be poured out, the cross had to happen. And then what we're going to see this morning is for the cross to happen, Rome has to get involved. So if you want to take notes, first point is formal trials. Formal trials. And this is going to focus on verses 1 and 2 and verses 11 through 14. So it begins, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So the reality is, everything that happened in chapter 26 wasn't really binding because it was under the cloak of darkness. And so as morning came, the chief priests and the elders convene and they rehash what has happened and they decide that they want to give Jesus over to death, which means that the Roman governor Pilate must be involved. So the Jews could govern themselves, but they couldn't execute the death penalty. And so to get Jesus condemned to death, they have to get Pilate involved. So they send Jesus over to Pilate for official charges and condemnation. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now notice the twist here. Notice the twist here. Why did the Jews want to kill Jesus? Because he said he was the son of God. That was at the end of chapter 26. Pilate doesn't care about that. That's just in-house Jewish stuff. So they have to make a charge that Pilate would care about. You see, like, if you want the government to condemn him, you have to charge him with something that the government would care about. And he said he's the son of God. Well, in their scheme, there's tons of gods and tons of sons of gods and tons of, like, like, that's not a problem. So the charge they aim at Jesus is this. He claimed to be king of the Jews. And so, oh, another king, that's a threat. That's a threat. And so this becomes an important part of the story because in the religious leader's attempt to trump up the charges against Jesus and make them threatening to Rome, he ends up, fast forward, being crucified for something that they deny. It's going to say on the cross, king of the Jews, but they don't like that. And so Jesus will die for claiming to be the king 
of the Jews, which becomes an accusation and a charge against them. You gave your king over to be killed by Rome. You rejected your Messiah. You rejected your Savior. Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, have you ever stopped to ask the question, why would Pilate be greatly amazed here? Because to stand before the governor and make no defense was to silently plead guilty in their scheme of things. So effectively, by being silent, yes, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah 52 and 53, but more tangibly, Jesus is not mounting a defense, which means, as you say, It is so. I am the king of the Jews. I am the son of God. I did say, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. And so Pilate is amazed that he is facing the charges and making no defense. So as the trial of Jesus becomes more formal, we see two realities. Jesus is eagerly and confidently and resolutely facing the cross that he knows is coming to carry out the plan of God to redeem God's people. Now, friends, before we move any further, this is our good news today. Jesus is resolutely facing the cross to carry out the plan of God to bring forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, hope, and everlasting life to his people. Without this death, everything that we claim and cling to today would be empty And in vain. But through this death, through this valley, and through the resurrection that's on the other side, there is indeed hope for sinners. There's indeed reconciliation from those who are who for those who are far away from God. There indeed is new hope, new peace, new joy to be had, even in a fallen world, because Christ is the Lord who died to take away sin and rose to bring everlasting life. So if you're here today exploring Christianity, this is what I want you to focus on. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus is a necessary work for all the broken people and all the sinful people and all 
all the far off people in all the world. And if you're a guest today, if you're exploring Christianity today, just gently, like nobody wants to stand up and spin in their chair, but if you want to, go ahead. But just gently look around the room. And know this, we don't think we're morally superior to people who are separated from the Lord. We know that we're evil and we know that we deserve his wrath. And yet we realize that Christ has done something that changes who we are. And therefore we cling to him. One of you responded appropriately. Okay, I'm going to take a little tangent. I've had, I've had, over the last few weeks, I've had a handful of people come to me and be like, I really want to say amen more at Redeemer, but I feel like that's not acceptable, and I kind of feel like I stand out, okay? So if you want to be part of our new amen club, <laughs> I want you to come stand by this table after the service, <laughs> and y'all can all start sitting together. If the Lord leads you to respond, respond. We don't care. Unless you throw things at me. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm back. So we would love to help anyone present to consider this Jesus, to consider what he has done for sinners like us. Talk to me after the service. Come join the Amen Club. They would love to tell you about Jesus. On a table out in the welcome area, um, before you gluttonously, gluttonously go running for the chocolates, there are some books about Jesus that we'd love for you to take. And I don't think that three pieces of chocolate qualifies as gluttony. So there you have it. Okay. The second reality we see is the way that in this accusation against Jesus, the way that power... And wanting to hold on to power really twists the leaders of the Jews in a knot where they reject what their whole faith is built off of, the hope of a coming Savior. And not only in rejecting him, they, they accuse him of something that highlights their rejection of him. I mean, it's kind of a cautionary tale a little bit, right? Like... Um, And my humble exhortation to all of us is when we read through the scripture and we read of these people who fail, that we don't like boastfully finger wag at them. But rather we humbly go, hmm, how did this happen? And how can we make sure that this doesn't happen to us? Let's make sure that we know who our Savior is. His name is Jesus. Let's make sure that he know we study the scripture and know what he came to do, which is build a kingdom that is in this world, but not of this world. And let's be sure that we follow him as he is leading us, rather than trying to make him the leader of our thing that we long for more than we long for him. The formal trial is plunging toward a conviction. We'll look at that more next 
weak. Second, responding to sin. In verses 3 through 10, Judas re-enters the story. And the story turns to how Judas, Judas is dealing with his sin and betrayal of Jesus. So if you're, if you're new to the, the gospel story, Judas was one of the 12 disciples closest to Jesus. And Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas promised to give Jesus over to the Jewish leaders, and he did so by walking into the garden where Jesus was praying, by embracing him, and by um, triggering to the, 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 the Jewish leaders that this is the one who is Jesus of Nazareth. So Judas re-enters the story. And this is a hard piece of scripture for us to wrestle with. So let me start by telling you what it says. And then we'll, we'll, we'll make some heads or tails out of it. So Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned. So he saw where this was going. And we're told he changed his mind and brought the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priest and tried to undo what he had done. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The leaders basically said, that's your problem, leave us alone. And Judas, in torment and frustration and anger, throws the pieces of silver into the temple, and he departs, and he hangs himself. So Judas felt... Regret. Judas wanted to undo what he had done. And when Judas tried to undo what he had done and realized that it couldn't be undone, he left the money and he went and he took his life. The leaders see the money and they say, we can't put this back into the treasury because it is blood money. Now here's an irony. They had no problem using money from the treasury as blood money, but they couldn't take it back. So, inconsistent. Evil. Wrong. Missing the forest for a tree. But they forge ahead, and they buy a field with the money and make it a burial place for strangers. And we're told that in all this happening, verses 9 and 10, the scriptures and their promises are fulfilled. Now, what do we do with this reality? Like, this is a hard passage, right? Like how many of you, I'm not asking you to raise your hands, but in your read through the Bible in a year plan, you just jump right over that one. Like, oh, that's tough, keep going. Yeah, can't do that. That's why we preach through books of the Bible. We gotta do the hard ones too. What are we supposed to take from this? 
I think we should look at Judas as a cautionary tale. And I think we should look at Judas as showing us how not to respond to sin. Or better yet, that repentance that brings life goes far beyond how Judas responded to his sin. Okay. So what did Judas do? First of all, he recognized that what he had done was wrong. Judas recognized that what he had done was wrong. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Second, Judas tried to undo the wrong that he had done. Third, Judas was filled with grief and remorse and brokenness over what he had done. Recognizing the evil, trying to undo the evil, feeling grief and remorse and brokenness over what he'd done. And the way this picture is painted, all of that falls short of biblical repentance. All of that falls short of biblical repentance. So if I steal a million dollars from you and I never get caught, is it still sin? Yeah, you should have a better accountant, but it's still sin. If I steal a million dollars from you, and I feel bad about it, and I go back to you and try to right the wrong, was that still sin? Yes, yes, yes. And ultimately, friends, particularly as we see here, the most offended party in all of our sin is the Lord himself. So a biblical repentance here would have looked like this. First, recognize the evil of what you've done. That's a great start. And then if you can verbalize that, what I did was evil, that's great. But the person with whom G Judas needed to deal was not the religious leaders, but Jesus. It was Jesus that he betrayed. It was Jesus that he betrayed. Now let's fast forward a little bit. The thief on the cross, did Jesus show him mercy or condemnation? Mercy. Peter, who, who denied Jesus three times after the resurrection, did he show him mercy or condemnation? Mercy. So Judas has offended the Son of God who is eager to show mercy to those who are repentant of the sins they've committed against him. Judas went to the wrong place. Place and Judas fell short of pleading with Jesus, the one whom he had betrayed, to forgive him of what he had done. So, hear this very clearly. I don't think any of you are Judas, at least physically in space and time. It's not possible for any of you to be Judas. 
okay? But I also know theologically and pragmatically that you're all sinners. I hope that's not offensive to you. That's just, I am too. Welcome. And sin always first offends the Lord. And second offends when it's interpersonal others. So repentance always begins with confessing to the Lord the sin we've committed. And if we're in Christ, pleading that the blood of Jesus, which was poured out on the cross, would cover the sin that we have committed, and then trusting that it is so. Repentance always begins there. And then repentance moves to righting the wrong interpersonally. Repentance moves to living differently. Repentance removes, moves towards seeking to not repeat what we have committed. Okay? But hear this very clearly. Regret is not a synonym of repentance. It's a step toward repentance. Sorrow is not a synonym of repentance. It's a step toward repentance. Trying to undo what you have done is not repentance. It might be involved in your biblical repentance. But trying to sweep everything under the rug and make it like it never happened is repentance. It's not repentance. Oh, let me clear that up. Goodness. Trying to sweep everything under the rug and pretend like nothing happened is not repentance. So Christians, we know an end to the story that Judas didn't know. It had been foretold to him, but he hadn't experienced it yet. When we sin, always go to Jesus first. Always run to Jesus. Repentance depends on Jesus making us right. And is, repentance is us coming to the end of our ability to cover up what we have. Christians, church, may our lives be filled with a true pursuit of thorough, ongoing repentance. Now, I have one more pastoral thing that I feel like I need to address from this passage. Um, throughout the history of the church, um, this passage has been, I would say, misused. Misused to create a, a theology about suicide that I would say doesn't stand up to the biblical argument. This passage isn't about Suicide, it's about sin and repentance. 
Judas did take his life, and by taking his life, Judas never came to repentance. And that's what we need to grieve, is that Judas never came to repentance, okay? So, if you're here today and you're in the deep, 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 dark cloud, and you're wondering, can I go another step? Because usually the only people that wrestle with questions of can people who commit suicide still go to heaven are people who are in the deep, dark cloud or they have a friend or a family member in the deep, dark cloud. And what I would say to you is, from your cloud, shout help. Shout help. We would love to be the church that responds to the cry for help. And then from the deep, dark cloud, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because when Paul wrote in Romans 8, nothing, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, nor principalities, nor things above the earth, or under the earth, or in the earth, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I think that's true. And we cling to that. And we lean into that. If me even mentioning this topic brings to you a desire to talk, I would love to talk. I'd love to pray. I would love to encourage. But to say something very simply, I would say this. I don't think we can make a scriptural case that everyone who takes their own life is Judas. So let's not make that case. And I think I can make a robust biblical case that everyone's eternity hinges on how we respond to Jesus. So let's look to him. Now, if you're a visitor, we talk about these things because they're, they're here. And I trust that they're important for us to Listen, because they are in the page. The takeaway from this sermon is, Jesus' death purchases salvation, and salvation purchases our ability to be honest before God, even about our sin. So our Father and our God, Would you, would you please take these words and speak them to your people? And would you cause your truth to resound in all of us? We cry out and we beg and we ask in the name of Jesus our Lord.